people get some strange ideas about what Yom Kippur is and isn't about, and so I want to talk about what it is very briefly before talking about what it most definitely is not. And I also want to talk about those social media blanket statements of remorse because someone asked me about them the other day, and I think I have an interesting alternative. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have years worth of blogs at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. I also have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for adults and kids. You can find the links for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have weekly broadcasts where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a real relationship with them through the Messiah. So what is Yom Kippur? Well, apart from being the 10th day of the seventh month on the religious calendar of the Bible, and there are actually four separate calendars necessitated by or mentioned in scripture, Yom HaKippurim is translated into English as the Day of Atonements or Coverings, as Kippur is a hard-to-translate word. We don't have a perfect word-for-word -word substitution in English because the concept is foreign in our language. We have no equivalent. Yom Kippur was the day that the temple or tabernacle was ritually cleansed with blood all the way into the Holy of Holies. In the ancient world, blood was recognized as a cleansing agent. Of course, we all know about blood stains, right? But sin was seen to leave an invisible and more durable stain. Sin was a form of death, and so only lifeblood could completely cleanse an offense. The stain of sin infected people, homes, communities, nations, and, if they were terrible enough, could even penetrate the temple itself meaning the holy place and the holy of holies. If the sin was extensive enough, then the holy of holies could become so defiled that Yahweh would have to leave, which we do, we do see he did in 586 BCE, leaving the city of Jerusalem spiritually undefended against the Babylonians, who did God a huge favor by destroying a temple that had become an abominable center of idolatrous worship and oppression so he didn't have to do it himself. Okay, so maybe not doing God a favor, but you get the gist. It was on Yom Kippur that the high priest carried out these complex rituals that cleansed the temple from the outside in, stopping with the cleansing of the Ark of the Covenant, which was hidden from the high priest by a cloud of incense. Of course, when Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, performed his own blood manipulation, the blood cleansing penetrated all the way beyond the veil into the heavenly tabernacle. This is why his sacrifice was better and more effective than the sacrifices of the high priest carried out with the blood of bulls and goats, which needed to be redone each and every year after he also made atonement for himself 
something Yeshua never had to do. And this, if this sounds like Hebrews, it it's not a direct quote, but I'm summarizing. Now, the cleansing took care of the sins of the entire nation that had gone unknown or unaddressed. Now, some sins weren't able to be covered by sacrifices and um, that, that were making the habitation of Yahweh uninhabitable. But what I don't want you to assume is that there is any change in the requirement for repentance. For example, if someone got away with murder, the cleansing of even the Holy of Holies wouldn't pardon that person. It would just remove the, the offense from the community in terms of the stain it left in God's house. The community wouldn't suffer for it, and Yahweh's house would return to an undefiled state. But the murderer wouldn't get off scot-free with God. Yom Kippur was never a, if I can just go undetected until Tishri 10, I'll be completely forgiven and all will be right with the world. If that was the case, then sanctuary cities wouldn't have been necessary and unintentional murderers wouldn't have to remain in those cities until the death of the high priest. All would be forgiven by royal command if slates were truly wiped clean. Yom Kippur was about maintaining the presence of God within his temple by doing a yearly house cleaning with the sprinkled blood of goats and bulls. It was also about cleansing the community from, from their collective guilt. This is why when you read Leviticus 16, you will see the repeated references to the consecration of this or that location in the temple, the temple furniture, the priests, and the people of the community as a whole. As such, for the righteous, this was a day to breathe a sigh of relief and to celebrate. The unrighteous had reason to fear because they hadn't repented, made restitution, or made themselves right with Yahweh. Just think of the rape of Bathsheba by David and the subsequent murder of her husband when he wasn't willing to go along with David's poor attempt at a cover-up. Nathan the prophet wasn't sent to David until after the baby was born, which means that David likely went through Yom Kippur without repenting. And in fact, he must have because when he raped Bathsheba, it was spring, the time of year when other kings were off fighting. That requires dry roads and wadis. The community was cleansed, the temple was cleansed, and so were the priests, but not David. When Nathan came to David, he was still held responsible for everything he had done, and the consequences lasted until the end of his life and beyond. It's an important thing to remember. Yom Kippur, when carried out properly, guaranteed God's continued presence within his temple. But Yom Kippur, unlike the cross, didn't change anyone. A murderer before Yom Kippur was still a murderer after Yom Kippur. A thief before Yom Kippur was still a thief afterward. We can obviously say the same for every sin there is. The community didn't bear the collective burden, but the offender most certainly did. Same goes for us. We can't lie all year harm people, etc., and then perform a cut-and-pasted blanket apology on social media and have it mean anything. Repentance is and has always been required, even after the cross, when we swear allegiance to Yeshua as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, our Savior, 
It's empty without also owning our offenses and making them right when we become aware of them. We are required to live as people who have been forgiven much and not as people whose sins no longer have consequences in the lives of others. God forgave David, but the ripple effects of his crimes far outlived him. I think that instead of blanket Yom Kippur apologies that don't actually fix anything or show true remorse, perhaps we ought to have an invitation to a reversal of the Festivus ritual of the airing of grievances. And if you haven't seen that Seinfeld episode, it's the only one I've ever watched, and it's hilarious. So what if instead of people saying, I'm sorry if I did anything that I don't remember, people said, what did I do to you so that I can say I'm sorry and we can deal with the fallout? I see a lot of people out there who are constantly venting over having been wrong, you know, over this or that, but I have never, ever seen an invitation to accountability at the expense of their own pride. Blanket apologies ring hollow when someone has actually hurt you and they don't even remember. And sometimes they don't even know. A lot of people out there slandering other folks as vile and evil over unknown offenses, okay? Why is it more embarrassing to actually talk to a person who's hurt us than to go around speaking hate about them? Goodness, you know, I have people out there who detest me, and when I ask them why, they say, you know what you did, except I don't. I don't know if I hurt them, or someone they know, or if there was a misunderstanding, or what. They have no problem telling people I'm terrible, with no details given. I mean, if you're going to gossip, then go whole hog and give the details, right? At least then the charges can be addressed. I don't know about you. But I'm not sorry for stuff that I don't know I've done to hurt or offend people. How can I be? I haven't been given the opportunity if the charges are withheld and or I'm ignorant of them. I'm very upset at the concept of having potentially damaged someone, but without specifics, how can I truly repent? We would be better to be more out in the open about those things which make us bitter in our hearts. Now, I talked to kids uh, this year about why God hates lies so much, but I want to touch upon it here as well. There are things that are the complete opposite of the kingdom. Death, oppression, violation, and lies. The first three, pretty much everyone agrees that those are wrong, um, but lies are tricky. Lies are useful, usually for the wrong reasons. For every person righteously lying to Nazi soldiers about harboring Jews in their attic, there are millions upon millions of people, and especially professed believers, who lie without an ounce of remorse. I'm going to give you an example, and I am sure you have seen this done, and I hope you haven't done it yourself, but here goes. When we strongly believe something or have a cause we want to promote, it's so easy to become morally compromised on behalf of that cause. We are quick to believe and pass on as, you know, verified and true anything that fits into what we believe or want to believe. And I'm not just talking about forwarding that Neiman Marcus cookie recipe hoax. And it's so, so embarrassing to admit I fell for that one in the 90s and I sent it to everyone in my address book. <laughs> anyway, 
When I was informed by a friend it was a hoax, I was so embarrassed and apologized. It was easy because I wasn't emotionally invested in any cookie recipe war against Neiman Marcus. But what happens when we are passionate about the content of a lie? What happens then? Say you truly believe something, meaning you have an agenda that you want to promote and therefore want people to accept as their own agenda so that they will act how you want them to act or stop doing or um, believing this or that. In other words, it isn't enough for you that you believe it. You feel compelled to go out recruiting and might even believe that it's the Holy Spirit telling you to do it. And maybe it is. But the problem is that it's only a belief, no matter how desperately you believe it or have aligned yourself with it. Or maybe you have maybe a little bit of proof, but it isn't enough to convince people who might also have proof of the opposite position being legitimate. This happens a lot. Sometimes we're both partially right and sometimes we are both entirely wrong. <laughs> but then you see the post of your dreams, a claim tailor-made to prove your claims and even signed, signed, or at least attested by an anonymous source who got the information from their cousin's boyfriend's music teacher. Just know, you just know it's true because it fits so perfectly with what you already believed and you go ahead and you hit that share button. Besides, you agree with the person who posted it and you just know that they did their homework to make sure it was true before they shared it so you don't have to. But unfortunately, they had the same attitude about the person who shared it with them. So no one's actually checked it out. So you post it, Eureka, the smoking gun, my point is proved. Only it isn't. It's just a claim that you believe because it confirms your biases and you threw your brain out the window. And we do it because we like to believe that people who agree with us are all good and honest and diligent people like we assume ourselves to be. Plus, the Holy Spirit would definitely tell us if it was a lie and that didn't happen, so it must be true. But the Spirit doesn't protect us or save us from our own intellectual laziness or smugness. Honesty is hard work. Gossip and spreading stories is easy. God isn't going to reward us for that by forever pricking our conscience. And when we repeatedly shut him down because we like what we're reading, we sear that portion of our conscience. Most often, in this case, you know, God will communicate with us by sending others to reason with us. Someone, for example, might inform us that we just posted an old hoax where someone lied and put somebody else's name on it. Oh, I see that a lot. They might even prove it by providing a credible statement, say, on that person's website, denouncing the message as not being from them at all, but written in their name. And that's the definition of false witness. Someone else might point out that the facts don't line up with what the post is claiming, perhaps claims about scientific studies that do not exist, or lying about the contents of actual studies. Someone may claim that such and such a teacher gave them permission to do X when the teacher teaches against X. I will never forget the time that a friend of mine was credited with giving people permission to perform ritual sacrifices in their backyards when that is the opposite of what they would ever teach in a million years. 
or the congregation that assures everyone that I'm telling people that we need to live in an honor-shame culture simply because I teach about that cultural mindset and tell folks all the time that I would hate living like that, and I'm glad I don't, especially as a woman. But we are quick to believe claims without investigating them because outrage and condemnation are an addictive combination. In fact, the majority of the lies that many people tell are simply in the form of passing on stories that they chose to believe without any firsthand proof. And so what do people do when confronted with their error? This is what separates the honest from the mistaken from the actual liars. I would hope that most people, when they have spread an untrue story about someone else, would feel sick about it. Gosh, I know I do. I know what it is to be on the receiving end and finding out that I've done it myself, and it literally wants, makes me want to vomit until I get it fixed and to do so at least as publicly as I harm them. Vindication is important to God, and it should be important to us. That's what the resurrection was, right? Vindication. What if we double down and refuse to accept anything as proof that we're wrong? What if we accuse those whom God sent to us to reason with us of being naive or accusing them of doing this just because they disagree and often assuming disagreement when it doesn't exist? Claiming cover-ups and persecution, assuming that a person really did say it but they later retracted it due to pressure when there is no proof whatsoever that they said it in the first place and nothing on the internet is ever truly deleted. I hope you know that or that the study they claim existed was erased from existence by whoever. And we could call it wishful thinking to be generous, but what it really amounts to is lying in the form of presumptuous accusations. Well, this person must have done such and such because this information cannot be wrong. You see the dangers inherent when we're so determined to be right that we're willing to make liars and villains out of everyone else? When we're so determined to defend our own discernment that our response to correction is a scorched earth policy. This isn't kingdom work, but the work of the evil one in our lives. Instead of growing in humility, we sidestep and become accusers of the brethren. Yom Kippur doesn't undo this or the damage caused by it to others and to our own souls. What's more, it's an insult to God when we do not believe we can trust him enough to work in ways that require integrity, when we think he needs us to compromise and become liars in his service. But lies stain the kingdom in ways that non-believers aren't blind to, even if we are. When we allow someone's name to be attached to something they never said, just because it fits our beliefs and will make us look more credible, we are guilty of manipulation. In the ancient world, people were frightened of having spells cast on them or drinking potions that would manipulate their thoughts and actions. It was called sorcery, which is our modern translation of pharmakia, and it was actually a crime in the Greco-Roman world and doesn't apply to medicine. I mean, their medicine was essential oils and herbs, guys. Okay. But this was actually a crime in the Greco-Roman world. Now, we don't do that anymore with, with potions and spells. 
and we don't take it seriously, but we do lie and manipulate to produce the same effect. In Galatians 3, Paul is so incensed about the circumcision group withholding table fellowship from the converted Gentiles unless they become formal, circumcised proselytes that he calls their words and pressure witchcraft. The deepest and most profound law in the Torah, apart from the complete love we owe to God, is the kind of absolute love of neighbor that we wouldn't ever do anything to anyone that we know would be harmful to ourselves. I've never met anyone who wanted their name attached to something they never said and never agreed with in the first place. I know that no one who finds out that they were wrong and issues a retraction out of the integrity of their hearts wants to be accused of simply buckling to peer pressure. I know that no one wants to fight a battle where they are crippled because they can't prove that something that never happened never happened, which is generally not possible. For example, I can't prove that I've never committed a murder. You cannot disprove a negative, as the expression goes. And liars and opportunists and manipulators take advantage of that. The last thing is that as believers, we can't do that and fast on Yom Kippur and call it good and go back the next day to business as usual. You know, one of the most painfully embarrassing experiences of my life is when I found that what everyone knew about the Babylonian origins of Christian holidays wasn't true at all. I found out by accident when I actually began to study everything we know about Tammuz and Ishtar and the historical figure of Semiramis who lived around the time of David. Yeah, I was studying Ezekiel and it, it was relevant. Well, not Semiramis. And this was like back in 2015. I have found that there are people who will listen to corrections and people who won't. There are people who will look at the source material we have from archaeology and then look at the unsubstantiated stories and will realize that if something can't be proven and there's no evidence whatsoever to believe it, then we can't say it with any sort of integrity. Jeez, I had to rewrite a book over the paragraph I wrote about that. And I'm still apologizing for claiming to have done my homework when all I did was trust others who hadn't done their homework either. Honesty is important to the kingdom. Without credibility, our witness to the truth of the gospel is worse than absolute silence about it. Better for people that we aren't associated with Yeshua at all than to see us as unrepentant liars willing to say whatever we think we need to say in order to get people to agree with us on our agendas. Liars lie. It's a fundamental truth of the universe. When we lie about one thing, we will lie about other things, and we cannot expect people to assume that we only lie for a good cause. Liars lie for selfish reasons. We all know that. Liars lie because they have no respect for the person they're lying to. All they care about is that the lie is believed. Of course, there is a difference between lying and not being open about our opinions. I don't, sometimes I don't really want to know what you think about my outfit. And we can give wrong opinions without being liars. We are all uninformed about stuff. But when we claim ourselves to be truthful, we had better not be compromising on the truth at all. See you next week.